good to see you here at the five o'clock teaching service. Um, we are um, engaged in a short series on canon or questions of canon, how we got our Bible, and um, want to. Oh, we've got a revival times, Chris. Sorry, just want to mention to you that uh, this week you've already heard that we are beginning our Living Free course and our Mastering Leadership course, and you saw a bit about that, but also just to let you know there on page two of our Revival Times, we also have our evening certificate course. Now, this evening certificate course um, is, it reaches people that aren't able to go on the daytime course, but it teaches the same course subjects that we do on our daytime Bible school. It's also accredited as well, so you're actually getting something that's nationally recognized and coming up this week, knowing the Father and the fivefold ministry. And you can do the whole course on an evening. It's Tuesdays and Wednesdays, depending on which course you take. But also you can just pick and choose. So you don't have to do everything. You can go at your own pace. You can see a subject. You think, oh, that's what I would like to do. And you can do that as a one-off and, uh, and then wait until the next one comes along that you're interested in. So I just wanted to draw your attention to that if you didn't know about it. Well, last week we were looking at the formation of the Old Testament. And the way that I approached it was that we spent time in the Old Testament. That's how we looked at it. And we saw how the Old Testament developed and how books overlapped. So at the end of the book of Deuteronomy overlaps with the book of Joshua and, and Joshua overlaps with the book of Judges. If you read them, you see how they are linked together and how Chronicles, the end of Chronicles overlaps with Nehemiah and Ezra. I think it's either Nehemiah or Ezra, I can't remember. I think it's Ezra that actually quotes from the last few verses of Chronicles. We spoke about how the Old Testament canon, that it was put into two sections, the law, the Torah, the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and the prophets, and that these two aspects were recognized Right throughout the Old Testament, we looked at different passages in the Old Testament where we saw that through the ages, uh, the new revelation that was coming, the prophets and the histories, would look back and affirm the books that had already come. And then we ended up looking at the New Testament and how Jesus himself identified with exactly the same canon uh, of scripture, of books that we have in the Old Testament. When we use the word canon, it comes from the Greek word Canon uh, for reed, which was like a measuring stick. You think of a ruler. You take a ruler and you want to measure how long something is and you take the ruler. The ruler's got the right measurement. You bring the thing towards it and you measure it. And so we're talking about those books that measured up to be the word of the Lord. We spoke about how the Old Testament books, right from their inception, they were recognized as the word of God and then transmitted and copied and, and kept. Jesus never had any discussion with the Pharisees or the teachers about what was Scripture. They understood what canon was. They understood the Old Testament Scriptures in the New Testament. Um, again and again throughout the New Testament, references made to the Old Testament Scriptures. Not once in the New Testament did they quote from the so-called Apocrypha. Do you remember we looked at that? That section that's in between Old Testament and New Testament in the Roman Catholic Bibles, a body of literature that was never accepted until this day 
by the Jewish people, the Christian people. In fact, it was a council of Trent in reaction to the Reformation. It was only then, um, in the late 1500s, when the Roman Catholic Church itself accepted the Apocrypha as scripture. Many of the bishops and cardinals at that time um, didn't agree with that. So today we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the New Testament canon. Uh, some of the books I've recommended to you, because I can only highlight certain things here. I don't want to get too much into textual criticism or anything like that, because I don't want to lose anybody. I just want to invite people to think about these questions. One of the best books on these, the most readable books on this, is by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I always say, you know, in your Christian library, there's certain books that you should have that I recommend. And in my top ten would be Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It really is important as a reference. And that looks at the Old Testament and the New Testament. It also looks at the historical um, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and also deals with many other uh, false uh, and liberal theolo theological views um, that, that, well, are not so much around today because many of them have been shown for what they were, uh, fabrications and fallacies. But Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, I encourage you um, to, get, to get that. Also, again, on, on the Bible as Scripture in the Old Testament and New Testament, an excellent book by Norman Geisler, an excellent Norman Geisler, From God to Us, How We Got Our Bible, From God to Us, a brilliant book, very readable, very easy to read. And then if you're really interested in the New Testament uh, debate, the current debates and how we got our New Testament, then this, this book is a book of Ivan. It's, it, it's reasonably academic, but I've really, really enjoyed this book, The Question of Canon by Michael J. Kruger, a, gr a great book that. So there's things that are, that are out there, but let, let's go to the New Testament. Oh, I made a mistake, by the way. just want to say I made a mistake last week. I lost a page of my notes at the end of the service, and I was talking about, uh, well, what I meant to talk about was the, um, I'll just check I get it right today. You don't want to, to get it wrong. I was talking about the so-called Council of Jamnia in 1890, AD 90. And this is a council of Jews after the destruction of the temple that some people said this was the council where the Jewish people finally decided what was in the Old Testament. I was showing you what a nonsense that was because the Old Testament canon was a progressive accepted thing. It wasn't a little council or a group of Jews. It wasn't even a council. It was a group of rabbis that sat down and said, what shall we have in our Old Testament? And it, it was the Council of Jamnia, AD 90, and I was referring it to as the Council of Jamina. I was getting actually mixed up with Jamina. Jamina was actually a battle. Uh, after uh, Muhammad died, there were many versions of the Quran that were around, many different versions of the Quran. And um, there was a big battle over which version to have. And after the battle, uh, they burnt all versions of the Quran but one. And they said, this is the one, which is something that Muslims find very difficult to cope with. Um, because they tend to think that the Quran dropped down from heaven. It didn't. It was a bunch of sayings, many of it based on um, ap apocalyptic Jewish stories and myths that was put together in many different forms, and they just burn everything but one. So that's one way of dealing with canon, isn't it? Burn everything but the one you want, and then say it was the right one all along. But we come now to the New Testament canon. And um, 
this is important. It, the New Testament canon was very different to the Old Testament in the way that it was developed. Um, and the New Testament canon, remember what we talk about canon is we're talking about those books that are God-breathed and accepted as scripture. The New Testament canon uh, was written in the space of, of a century. The last book to be written in the New Testament was the Gospel of John, maybe just about after AD 90, and all the other books were written before that. Probably the first book in the New Testament, I believe, is, the, is James's letter. And in that, in that window, you have all of the books of the Bible written during the time of living witnesses, the apostolic age. And that's very important for us to realize that these letters that were written that we have in our New Testament, when they were written, the people who wrote them were around. The people that knew the people that wrote them and their disciples were around. The people that witnessed the events in Galilee and the Gospels, they were around. And as these books were written and began to be copied and circula circulated, there were eyewitnesses who could look at what was being written and say, hey, wait a second, uh, Paul never wrote that letter, did they say, well, how do you know? Well, I knew him. Or they could say, yes, that's exactly what happened in the Gospels. We, at the beginning of this course, we, we uh, sorry, at the beginning of this, this series, we, we said that this idea that the Bible is full of myths is ridiculous. And we spent some time talking about the eyewitness accounts that are in the New Testament. We looked at Luke and how he said that he was bringing together an ordered historical account. You know, it's funny, isn't it? I have found that liberal theologians, they look back at the New Testament eras as if people had no idea what history was at all, as if history was, was first invented, perhaps in the time of, of the Enlightenment. And these ancient folk had no idea what history was or what history functioned as. They just made it up along. You know, there, there, there is a great deal of disrespect in academic circles, uh, unfounded towards those of the ancient era. And so we find Luke acting like a historian, both at the beginning of Luke and at the beginning of Acts. He says, I have come to give you an orderly account that you might be sure of the things that you've heard of. That, that's, that's a historian speaking. And also in the New Testament, they were very keen to talk about eyewitness accounts. I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in history in, in any sense of the term, but one thing I do know is the importance of eyewitness accounts, that eyewitness accounts are very important in history. Well, it's funny how in the New Testament they were aware of that. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16, speaks about the fact that he witnessed the manifestation on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Apostle John, those things in, in first letter of John, those things that we saw according to the word of God, those things that we handled. We were there, Acts chapter 1, um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6 following, amazing. We have Paul saying, I'm talking, talking about the resurrection. It wasn't just something made up. He said, let me tell you about the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection, that he appeared to the apostles, that he actually appeared to 500 people in one time. Oh, and he actually appeared to me as well. These are eyewitness historical accounts. We could have a look at some more, but I did go a little bit more in depth um, into that uh, on the first uh, section um, that, that we had. Now, when we come to have a look 
at the New Testament, one of the big debates about the New Testament canon is this, and you will hear people saying this to you, trying to attack the Bible. It goes a bit like this. Your New Testament, well, the first thing to say is that the people that wrote the New Testament, this, this is the way it goes, it's the false view, but you'll hear this a lot. The people that wrote the New Testament, they, had, they, they weren't writing scripture. They, they were just writing books. Paul was writing a letter to the Ephesians or the Corinthians. He wasn't sitting there thinking as he wrote a letter that he was writing God-breathed scripture. It was just a letter. Uh, just like if you wrote an email, you wouldn't be sitting there thinking, I wonder if this is scripture or not. And their, their idea is that the early church wasn't even thinking about writing scripture, that for them, the only scriptures that there were were the Old Testament. And so how did we get our New Testament? Well, they say, well, that happened a lot later on, maybe three or four hundred years later. Then, as the church got established and religious with its bishops and its councils, it looked back at the literature and said, what shall we have as our New Testament Bible? And some bunch of bishops in some council somewhere in the ancient Near East sat down and said, all right, is James in? Well, I don't know, I'm not sure I like James. Well, what do you think? Well, I like James. All right, James can be scripture. What about Thessalonians? Yeah, put that in. What about Mark? You know, put that in. Put that in. What about the Gospel of Thomas? Oh, I don't like that. No, I don't like that either. Well, let's not put that in. And, and a lot of people will accuse the New Testament of being, of being only accepted as scripture later on and by a bunch of church officials. They say it hasn't got anything to do with God at all. It was only the fourth century that the church decided what was in and what was out. I want to show you that's nonsense. Uh, but we do have, as well as an Old Testament apocrypha, we spoke of that body of books and looked at that last year, I mean, last week, what am I on today? Last week, and we showed how the Apocrypha was not the word of God for a number of, of different reasons. Well, so there is what we call a New Testament Apocrypha. In other words, books that were never in the canon, never part of Scripture, never accepted by the Christian church, but people like Dan Brown are always talking about them. There's always some new gospel that's been discovered. Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Barnabas, Gospel of Judas... Gospel of Jesus' wife. That sounds a good one, doesn't it? Gospel of Jesus' wife. And you get Dan Brown and, and this type of idea that somehow the church, after about 300 years, began to suppress things and began to change and adapt and rewrite the New Testament for, for its own means. They also say that the New Testament church, that they weren't a textual church, that they were full of oral tradition, in other words, they would pass the stories uh, down to one another, but they weren't, they, they weren't very literate, they say, and therefore they didn't write these things down. Again, that's nonsense. Not everybody did know how to read. That's true. But we can find, as, as we'll see, that there was a strong literary understanding uh, of, of putting these, these, these things down. In fact, some people say that the oral tradition, that's, no, that's not writing it down, but just speaking it, was was so strong in the early church that what we read in the Gospels uh, actually isn't original. It's like, have anybody ever played that game, Chinese Whispers? Yeah, I don't know why it's called Chinese Whispers, but there you go, Chinese Whispers. And you get about, I don't know, 20 people in a circle. And then what happens is you tell somebody a word or a phrase. Um, it could be something like Manchester United lost today or something like that. 
And then look, they say, and they say, right, you can only whisper it to the person next to you once. So they go, Manchester United lost today. And then if the person misses it, well, that's tough. They've got to get what they heard. And then they whisper it once, and 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 they whisper it once. And by the time it gets around, it's something like Millwall 1-3-0 today. And you say, well, how did that happen? Well, Chinese whispers. Somebody would add something. Somebody would misunderstand something. Somebody wouldn't like what was heard, so they changed it. And there's a whole body of thinking that says this is exactly what happened in the New Testament, that, that, that these miracles didn't really happen, that they were added later, that probably the feeding of the 5,000, it was just a big picnic somewhere. And that very quickly, after months and a few years, the church began to change and, and adapt the stories until... Until, and we got to get rid of the layers of addition as people, you know, tell a story and then add something to it and then change it. And, and by the time they've had a go with it, it's a totally different story. But there's no evidence of that at all. In fact, as I've said, all of the New Testament was written during the period of eyewitnesses. Uh, and you would have to really believe in, an, in a very corrupt generation to think that the eyewitnesses would say, actually, there wasn't a feeding of the 5,000. I was there, but I'll keep it quiet that people would testify and be prepared to die for the fact that they saw the resurrected Christ uh, and they're prepared to, prepared to die for a lie. And so all the evidence shows that because of the short amount of time that Scripture was written in the New Testament within living memory, there were people that could check it out. There were people that could, would look over it. Also, the idea that in the New Testament... People weren't looking for a new body of Scripture. This is the idea. They weren't thinking of new Scripture, people says. They had the Old Testament. They weren't thinking they were going to have a New Testament. Well, that misunderstands the whole focus in the New Testament of the new covenant. Do you know, the Jews themselves didn't believe that God's full revelation had yet come to the earth. They were awaiting the Messiah. They were awaiting the new kingdom age. They had... Prophecies that, that spoke about a new covenant that was coming. Prophecies that spoke about a future. There had been 400 silent years since the last book of the Old Testament had been written. But that didn't mean that in the Jewish mindset that they had thought to themselves, that's it, God has got nothing more to say to us. Let's have just a, a few scriptures just to um, um, emphasize Size that Isaiah, for example, in chapter 49, and verse 6 Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the pre preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And also, chapter 52 and verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. There was an expectation that God was going to return to his people. The people had returned from Babylon. But there was still a hope of a spiritual uh, restoration that was to come. Jeremiah chapter 31 And verse uh, 30, yeah, okay, 31. 
Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put the law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So we see there that Jeremiah is speaking about a whole new covenant that's going to come into existence. Not like the old covenant that came with Moses, but there's going to be a new covenant that God's going to bring. We see in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 24, it says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I'll cleanse you and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit and I'll, I'll put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit upon you and cause my, you to walk in my statutes. There was a belief that God was going to bring a new covenant. We see this in the New Testament, this expectation that something new was going to come to pass. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 41, looking at Jesus, and we find uh, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He said... If, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. There was an expectation of a new Messiah and a new covenant that was going to come into Israel. John chapter 4 and verse 25. This is the woman in Samaria and she said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he was that is Christ, when he comes he will tell us all things. So even up there in Samaria, there was this understanding and expectation. God hadn't finished. There was more revelation to come. There was a new covenant that was going to come. The Old Testament was not viewed by the Jewish people as a story that had been completed, but something that was waiting to be finished. The Messiah would come. There would be a new covenant. Right when we begin to read the Gospels, we see this expectation of the new covenant fulfilled. Now, this is very important when we come to canon, because so many people miss this. For example, in uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Now John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So when Jesus came and began his ministry, he was bringing in a new covenant. Remember the, the, at the Last Supper, when they had the first communion, and he spoke to them, he said, do this as often as you remember me, and he broke bread and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then afterwards, he took the wine, and giving thanks, he said, take, drink, this is the blood of the new covenant. 
And this new covenant understanding is found right there in the heart of the Gospels. It's almost as if whenever God, maybe this is a generalization, but it's generally true, whenever God has in salvation history actually redeemed or delivered his people, the act of salvation, there is usually a body of literature or a body of scripture that actually not only records what God has done in history, but explains it. So you think about the Old Testament and how God delivered his people from Egypt. And then once that delivering work had gone, what happened? A covenant came to explain his deliverance. When we think of the taking of the promised land, there was a record of the promised land, a record of the acts of God, a record of um, Joshua, a record of Judges, a record of Samuel, a record of the kings. And then you have the works of the prophets that was alongside that, speaking into the history that was taking place, interpreting the history that was taking place, explaining the history of God that was taking place. And so in the New Testament, we have the Gospels and Acts that are salvation history. God's deliverance through bringing his son to die on the cross and to rise again. God's establishment on the day of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. The first day of Pentecost, what happened? Can anyone tell me what happened on the first Pentecost that ever took place? The law was given. The first day of Pentecost that was celebrated by the Moses generation, that day was the giving of the law. And the new covenant had a new Pentecost. And what happened then? Not the giving of the law. The law had passed away. In its place came the Spirit. You know, we don't need the law anymore. Thank God for its testimony and everything like that. We as Christians don't need the law anymore because the Spirit has replaced the law. If you walk by the Spirit, you're not under the law. If you exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, you don't need the Ten Commandments. It's not that they're wrong. It's just they have become redundant. And there is a great better way to walk, not by law, but by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so we see this salvation history. But then we have, don't we, the letters and revelation and the epistles coming afterwards. And what are they doing? Well, God has acted and, and they are the scriptures that are interpreting what had happened and applying what, what had happened. And so the New Testament people were expecting God to do something new and therefore were expecting with this new covenant that there would come a written form. It wasn't something that was alien from their minds. It wasn't something that was beyond their expectation. Oh, we've got the Old Testament. That, no, when, when Christ came, he came as the Word. And we, we see this. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. I know it's the last book of, in, our Old Test, in our New Testament, but Revelations chapter 28, it just gives you that feel that there was an understanding that God's Word was coming in Scripture Scripture form again. Revelation chapter 28 and verse 18 and 19, right at the end. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. 
And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies about these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. So right at the end of the book of Revelation, I know that is specifically speaking primarily about the book of Revelations, but still... John wrote other books. He wrote the book of John and the letters. There is this understanding that God is delivering his word in a very special way to bring in the new covenant and to apply the new covenant. We see that very soon these letters that were written by apostles were being received and read in churches. And and some people say, well, look, You know, the New Testament, they didn't realize that they were writing scripture. Well, I beg to differ. Uh, They wrote with a note of apostolic authority. Let's just give you a couple of examples. Um, 2 Corinthians. uh, Chapter 10, verse 9, if I've got got it right. I do not want you to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter, when absent, we do when we are present. And um, earlier on in verse 8, he says, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave up for building you up, and not destroying you. So there we see Paul um, talking about the authority that he came with with his letters. If we go to Colossians chapter 4. And verse 16. End of Colossians. And when this letter has been read among you. Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And so here we find that these letters were being sent to uh, give instruction to the churches. They came with apostolic authority. Let's see. Is that one of one Thessalonians? Chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27 or 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And so very early on, the letters that were written were seen as authoritative. They weren't just personal letters to a church, but they were also to be copied and, and read. Um, we have, for example... This practice continued. When the apostles died out, there was a new group of leaders that came to lead the church. And this is the time of what we call the early church fathers. You have the apostolic age, and then the next group of Christian leaders were called the early church fathers, or the church fathers. And so we have some interesting church fathers who were um, in the time between 100 AD and 200 AD, the early church fathers, and here's Justin Martyr, and he was um, ministering in the middle, uh, or the early to the middle uh, of the second century, and this is what he wrote. He said, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place 
and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. And when we all rise together and pray, and as we have before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability. And so there was a habit of part of the church service or bringing together of reading not only the Old Testament scriptures, but here also we find the, the, those that were the writings or memoirs, the gospels of the apostles. We know that the apostles spoke with the authority of God. Jesus said to them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 20, he says, don't worry about what you're going to say because my father, he will speak to you. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all those things that I have spoken to you. In John 17, 8, he speaks to the apostles, uh, well, in his prayer to the Father, he says, I have given them your word and I am sending them out. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15 says something very, very interesting. So, yeah. 2 Thessalonians 2. Well, I'll go from 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So in other words, Paul is saying, right, we apostles, we've come to you and we've taught you. And what you're teaching you is not just the ideas of mankind, but these are the things that you can stand on. And it comes from our apostolic preaching, but it also comes from our letters. So you can see how Paul saw that some of the letters that he was writing, that they were to be taken and to be understood as authoritative. Uh, a great e example of this is... In Galatians chapter 1, I mean Galatians was a letter to the Galatians, but in that you see that Paul is under no confusion about the authority that he has to teach and that his authority comes from God. So Paul, Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is the theme of the first half of chapter 1. And what's happening here is that people are giving false teaching early on in the church. People are teaching another gospel. People are saying, no, this is what you should follow. This is what you should understand. You need to be circumcised. And Paul is saying, hey, wait a second. It, it, this isn't a free-for-all. You have your doctrine. I have my doctrine. You have your teaching. I have my teaching. No. What you're hearing is a false gospel hasn't come from God, hasn't got any authority. These people claim a false authority, but I am an apostle, not from men. And my teaching doesn't come from men. He talks about uh, his life. He says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem. I didn't learn these from other apostles, but I've got this from Jesus. And listen to this, verse 11. 
of chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that is preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul is saying, this letter, hey, I'm not coming here with just some second-hand, third-hand. I'm telling you that what I am teaching you and the message that I am bringing you is from God. It can be believed as much as you would believe any scripture in the Old Testament. What am I doing here? Instead of going to the external, historical things to show you the authority or the manuscripts of the Word of God, I want you to understand that within the texts themselves, just like I did last week, I focused on the texts of the Old Testament, that these people knew what they were writing. They didn't come here thinking, oh, I'm just writing a letter, and then 200 years ago, 200 years or 300 years later, somebody said, oh, this is a nice letter. Let's call it the Word of God. You can see that there in what they're writing, they already have this awareness that what they're delivering is authoritative from God. Uh, there's a, there's a, um, a wonderful passage that, that really just shows you that the early church understood that there was a revelation that was being written down and to be treated as scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I like this because Peter fell out with Paul. In Galatians we read that Peter got mixed up. You know, these apostles, they weren't perfect, but when they gave revelation, they were perfect. The people that wrote the Old Testament letters and the book, they weren't perfect, but when they wrote revelation, God superintended to ensure that it was perfect. Um, and in, in Peter, 2 Peter 3, verse, he had a big fallout with Paul, and Paul had to correct him, and it seems that Paul came back under the correction when Paul was no longer eating with Gentiles. and, uh, and uh, Sorry, Peter was no longer eating with Gentiles. And Paul said to his face, that's wrong, and it's against our revelation. In 2 Peter 3, 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, which he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So there you have Peter recognizing the writings of Paul as on a par with scripture, and, and verse 14 you can use Paul's writings to be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish and, and, and at peace. Let's just hit a few of these. One Thess back to 1 Thessalonians. I get mixed up with which I've done, but uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in your believers. Isn't that amazing? So this idea that these people weren't thinking about scripture, that they weren't coming with a word of authority, that it would be the church 300 years later that would go back and suddenly say, what have we got here? What shall we say is scripture? What shall we say is the canon? 
The idea that nobody thought about what was scripture or what was not scripture in the New Testament until some later council simply isn't here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Again, instructions with authority. And verse 8 of the same chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4. Therefore, whoever dis disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And very strong words that we find there. And we could go a little bit more in, in, into that as well, but I think it's enough to demonstrate that what was happening on in, the, in, in these early times with the apostolic preaching and the letters that were being written and the things that were eyewitnesses is that this wasn't a group of people that weren't expecting Scripture revelation. No, a new covenant was expected to be written down. How many have ever heard of a contract that's not been written down? Even the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was written down. And so the expectation was that the new covenant, the words of Jesus, would also be, <coughs> would also be um, written down. We spoke about how that all of these in the New Testament would be written and circulated. And this is one of the amazing things about the New Testament. It, it, is, it is the uh, most accurately and abundantly attested historical documents of the ancient Near East of its time. I mean, if you were to go in and, and look at some of the other ancient works, uh, uh, Greek works or, or um, Roman works, and you, you, you look at something like Suetonius' History of the Twelve Caesars or some of these historical works, and you say, okay, we want to get back to the original manuscript. We want to find out where the copies are. Some of these books, there's hundreds and hundreds of years between when it was first written to the first copy that they have. Who knows what's happened in between? But what we see in the New Testament is, you see, as soon as these things were written down, now we're talking, okay, it became a Gentile church very soon, but it's originated with the Jewish people. They have their own scribal understanding. They had the scribes and the scribes' job was to make sure that the scriptures were retained in their original form and faithfully passed down. And many of these scribes became Christians. Not all of them, but many did. Pharisees and scribes, they became Christians. And what did they do? Well, they began to bring their same understanding to the words of Jesus and the gospel and the apostolic letters that came. They didn't just throw them around, they treasured them. They became part of the teaching in services. And they were faithfully copied and copied and copied and copied. And because they were from their inception being copied and copied and copied, the more copies you have, the harder it is to change the originals. You know what I'm saying? So if, if I just had one copy of a letter that I wrote and gave it to Chris and said, they are Chris, and then Chris made a copy and destroyed mine and gave it to Scott, and Scott made a copy and destroyed Chris and gave it to Hannah, and Hannah just, and then, then what you would have, you'd say, wait a second, you know, how do we know that those three copies are similar to the one that first Bruce wrote? But how about this? I don't know how many are here, 150 people or something. How about I said, I'd like you all to make a copy of this. 
We had 150 copies. And I'd like you to go ahead and keep making copies and keep making copies so everybody could read. Very soon it would be almost impossible to change the original. Why? There's too many copies out there. Do you know what I'm saying? So if one of you in this place today, if we made many copies here today, if one of you said, I'm going to change, I don't like what Bruce taught, I'm going to change that, well, that's one amongst 150 that are constantly being copied. And this is exactly what happened with the New Testament. They were avid copiers of the letters. The earliest fragment that we have of the New Testament is just around 100 AD. You can go and see it in John Ryland's uh, library in Manchester of John's Gospel. That's the earliest. And we have fragments and we have whole sections and manuscripts constantly copied, not just copied, um, you know, in, in, in the Greek, but very soon they were translated. We have 5,686 partial and complete manuscript portions copied by hand between the 2nd and 15th century. Earliest fragment from a, a hundred. We have 10,000 Latin versions. We have 2,000 Ethiopian sections. We have Armenian and Syriac. We have 25,000 manuscript portions of the New Testament in existence today. No literature in the ancient world compares with the reliability of the New Testament. For example, Homer's Iliad is the next with the greatest manuscript authority. It was originally written in 900 BC, and the oldest copy is 400 BC. That's 500 years after the earliest. Who knows what happened in between? But, you know, scholars are more than happy to keep Homer's uh, name written on it. Uh, Plato wrote his Tetralogies between 427 and 37 BC, and the earliest existing copy is 900 to 1300 years later. We only know of seven manuscripts. So there, there is a, almost a thousand years between when he wrote it and the copy we have. Who knows what went on in between? And yet scholars are more than happy to keep his name on it. And when you take this type of, 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 of view and then go to the New Testament, earliest 100 AD, copy after copy, preserved by people who valued what was, what was written there, copied and read part of, the, part of the services. Do you know, in the hundred years after the apostles died out, so AD 100 to around AD 200, the church fathers, if you look at their writings, you can almost, almost make the whole of the New Testament up you know, I was, I was like, you can almost reproduce the whole of the New Testament just by the early church fathers quoting it, which shows how highly they valued the apostolic scriptures. They were teaching from it. They were quoting from it. They understood there was a difference to that. If they quoted a, a, um, a philosopher or a different type of thing, it wasn't quoted in the same way that they were using and teaching um, these these scriptures. And so the New Testament is reliable. I spoke last week about the uh, Greek version of the Old Testament, didn't I? The Septuagint. And how sometimes in the Old Testament, if you've got a margin Bible, you'll see the letters LXX, Roman numeral 70, for the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. 
And actually, many times in the New Testament, when you see quotes from the Old Testament, they're not quoting from the Hebrew Old Testament, they're quoting from the Greek Old Testament, the translation. That's why, have you ever noticed that sometimes the quotes in the New Testament are a little bit different to the quotes in the Old Testament? Well, often because it's the Greek version. It's the same meaning, but slightly different. The Old Testament. Well, we find that... Um, if we look in the margins of our New Testament, occasionally, very occasionally, you will find little notes about different manuscripts. So your classic is uh, the bit where Jesus, the disciples can't cast out this demon. And uh, Jesus says, this type only comes out by prayer. And sometimes when you look in your, if you've got a Bible, a study Bible, and you look in the center, it says some manuscripts have fasting, prayer and fasting. That means in all those copies, some have prayer, some have fasting. 99.99% of the manuscripts that we have in the New Testament are in total agreement. And where there's a little thing like that, is it prayer or is it prayer and fasting? Do you know who cares? Prayer, prayer and fasting, it's all the same thing, isn't it? They're, 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 it's amazing, it's, it's miraculous how this has taken place. Two of the things that, that, that uh, two of the main things that you'll notice in your New Testament that I will um, highlight today is um, at the end of Mark chapter sixteen. Some in, in some versions, especially things like the NIV, you see the ending of Mark, and you will see in some of your translations that. Um, Mark 6, for example, here in mine it says, some of the earliest manuscripts don't include Mark 16, 9 to 20. Can you see that in yours? Sometimes you have a little bracket, sometimes you have a little note. So what they're saying, they're saying, well, some of the earliest manuscripts don't have the ending from, chapter, from verse, verse 9. But some of the manuscripts that are copied finish in verse 8. And they're just mentioning that. Well, <laughs> I've done a bit of a study on that, um, and uh, I, I can tell you there's no reason to think that that ending shouldn't be there. Some of the best scholars, you know, so, you know scholars aren't always as clever as you think. No, seriously, they're not always as clever as you think. I say that because I was brought up, my dad was a professor of geography, and I was brought up in academic circles, and they are very clever, but, but they are also human beings just like us, with passions like us, agendas like us preconceived ideas just like us, although they like to think that they don't, they do. They publish something, they'll defend it till the hilt. It's their reputation. They'll defend it even when it's indefensible. Why? Because they're human beings. And uh, some of the best scholars, I have some of the best scholars have said, oh yes, this last section wasn't there. But there was something there, but it wasn't that last section. Well, I'm like, well, you're telling me that the early manuscripts finished and they didn't copy the end? Yes. But you're, not, you're saying it's a different end and we've got? Yes. You're balmy. It's the same ending. You just don't like the bit about speaking in tongues and drinking poison. It doesn't fit your middle class liberal view. No, no, there's no reason not to accept that. And if you look, and this is where you do studies, in the earliest versions... I looked at, the, at one of the earliest versions that doesn't have it, and there's a big gap in the manuscript where it's meant to be before it goes on to the next section. I mean, hello. 
There's a gap where it's meant to be in the original manuscript, and you're saying it wasn't there. Well, there's something that's meant to be there. Maybe they just didn't put it in. It's, one, it's a couple of manuscripts. And the majority of the manuscripts carry it. Another famous, and it doesn't make any difference anyway, because the truths are, are in other things. But I just want to let, let you know. And the other one that is often found is in, that people often talk about, and that's about it really, is um, in John chapter 8. One of my favorite stories, so it has to be in the Bible. And that is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And if you go to that in your Bibles, and then I think that's, we've done a bit today. John, I mean, I'm only just touching, just, you have to go to the books I've recommended if you really want to get into dates and this and the other. I don't want to get into that. I just want to keep in Scripture as much as possible. You know what I'm saying? Um, John chapter 8. Okay. Um, All right, maybe I've got it wrong. Where is it? Can someone tell me? John 7, that's... Oh, there, sorry, here it is. So, at the end, for example, at the end of chapter 7, I have this. The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11. Have you got that? Can you see that? And so I've got, I've got, I've got brackets about the woman caught in adultery saying that now, that, that's a little bit naughty to say the earliest manuscripts do not include, because it's only a couple again. One of them's the same one that doesn't have much. It's only a couple that don't have it. But it gives you the idea, because you see, what do you do? It's important. Early manuscripts are important. Why? Because they're early. But so also are the majority texts. In other words, you know, okay, you've got an early text, fine. But what about all the other copies that are out there? You have to weigh it up and say, well, how early is it? That's important that it's early and that it's slightly different. True. But what about the and 800 or so manuscripts um, in comparison to this? They, they have it. And so I don't want to get too much in detail, but as far as I'm concerned, it's in. It's in. And everything about it, I mean, it's such a wonderful story. If you want to understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the best way of, of, of explaining it is the woman caught in adultery. Because everything you need to know about the old, what's old and what's not now, you know these people, and think next week what I'm going to do. This, I think next week, I thought about, shall I talk about discrepancies in the New Testament? What I'm going to do is I'm going to address the issue that people say that the God of the Old Testament is a monster, a moral monster, and is a great book, one of the best books I've ever read, called God is a Moral Monster. I'm going to show you the difference, because you get people, I heard somebody on a YouTube saying, oh, well, you know, dismiss Christianity because your Bible believes in slavery. Bang. It's rubbish. Oh, no, it's there in the law, slavery. No, it's not. Not once does the Old Testament use the word slavery in the sense that we would think it. It's actually putting people in service so that they, for a contract so they can be looked after and not destitute. We're going to look at some of these things. And so when people say you would kill homosexuals, you want to stone adulterers. Well, here's Jesus. Did he stone this woman who was caught in the act of adultery? The Jews wanted him to carry out the Mosaic law. And he said, you that is without sin, cast the first stone. That's the first thing he said, was that there's no human being here that has the authority to cast a stone or to put the Mosaic law into action without themselves being guilty. And then second, he said to her, go your way, but sin no more. He recognized it was sin. 
But he said, go your way. Why? Because he was going to carry. He was going to carry her stones on the cross. He was going to be beaten and bruised for her adultery. He was going to pay the Mosaic law and the Mosaic penalty. So when we start talking about later councils in the church and Constantine, by that time, all these books were already regularly used as scripture. What took place was when they, when they had these councils later on, they didn't confer any authority that wasn't already there. They simply, in the times that they were in, there were so many of these false gospels being written that they put a line in the sand and they said, right, let's just, let's just confirm what we've known all along, which books and letters have always been accepted by the church of Scripture. And they went through it thoroughly looking at the history and the books and the acceptance, and then they, they, they made a decree. But it's, a church council does not make this the New Testament. I, I, don't, I don't look back at the Synod of Hippo or the, in 393, or the Synod of Carthage in 397, and tell, I don't look at those and say, that tells me what's in my New Testament. I just say that's a confirming of what we could already find out ourselves with, our, with historical ability and with textual critique. I could tell you without those councils what is in the New Testament, and it would be the same as in those councils, but I'm not bothered by, by a council or two. Do you know what I'm saying? They recognize what we've always known. Anyway, that's a brief introduction into New Testament canon. Next week, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about the misunderstanding between the Old and New Testament, because I am finding that when I'm meeting people that aren't Christians, more and more, the first thing I have to say is, whoa, 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 what are you talking about the law for? You're speaking to a New Testament Christian who believes in turning the other cheek, loving your neighbor. I don't believe in eye for eye. Whoa, whoa, stop. Stop judging me by the Old Testament. Then You, you just thank God there is a New Testament, or I would be bashing your brains out. I would be... I would be burning you. You just thank God there's a New Testament, but there is a New Testament. I am a New Testament believer. There's a new covenant, and I want to explain how the old, co the old covenant is important. It's God's word. But I tell you, without the new covenant, we're finished. But the old covenant shows the power and the holiness of God and holds everybody to account, not just a few, but everybody to account. And in its time, it's secured and protected and and. and kept the children of Israel free from other cultures until Christ was to come. And that's what the Old Testament was. It was a nanny to keep Israel as a little child until it was ready and mature enough to enter the new covenant. That's what I'm going to answer all those questions about, you know, executions and, and all those stuff. We'll do that and finish that next week. God bless you.